Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week, we're back in the sermon series, What Matters to God? It's a study on the seven churches of Revelation. Today, we're in Revelation 3, taking a look at the church of Sardis. Today's message is entitled, A Call to Wake Up. Stick around to the end to find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. Church, this morning we're going to be resuming our study of the seven churches of Revelation. So if you haven't figured it out yet, you're going to be turning to Revelation. So last book of the Bible, we're going to make it easy on you. We're not going back to uh, Lamentations this morning. So last book of the Bible, flop it open to the end, find your way to chapter three and you're there. Those of you who have been here, you know that the purpose of this study of the churches in Revelation is to discover what Jesus wants in a church. That's our whole goal. Our goal is not to find out what you want in a church. It's not to find out even what I want in a church. It's to find out what Jesus Christ is pleased with in a church. And so we've looked at these seven churches, which is essentially seven different report cards. Jesus lets them know, satisfactory, excellent, you know, needs improvement, does not play well with others. And so that's what we're going to find here. And we're going to look at one more church here this morning in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. It's the church at Sardis. If you want to find it on the map there, you can. There's the, where all the churches are located in Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. <clears throat> in verse 1, we begin with this. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write. And we're just going to pause there. Uh, we're talking about the church in Sardis. The angel of the church is the angelos, the messenger, the pastor of the church. He's addressing him because as go the leaders, so go a church. And so he wants to speak to the church at Sardis. Sardis, many years ago, was a very, very successful city. They were the first to dye wool. They were the first to mint coins. Have you ever heard of Aesop, of Aesop's fables? You know, the uh, fox and the grapes, uh, tortoise and the hare. It's said that this man originated from Sardis as well. It was also the capital of the Lydian kingdom. And so Sardis was very, very successful. The problem is when we get a lot of success, what also tends to come with that? A whole lot of pride. And they became a very proud kingdom. And the reason was, if you see this next picture, they were set up on an acropolis. They were on the top of this mountain, and on three sides was this sheer rock face. It looked like something from the Lord of the Rings. It was just this, this incredible city. It was this impregnable fortress. It was, there was actually a phrase, to take Sardis was a phrase that meant to do something that was impossible. And their pride led to their downfall because eventually they were conquered. People scaled those rock cliffs and they conquered the city several times to the point where in John's day, when he's addressing the church that remains in Sardis, it was decaying. The city was well past its glory days. And as went the city, so went the church. The church at Sardis, we're going to find, was well past its glory days. And so we're, as it often goes, our formula here with these churches is Jesus approaches a church with a certain posture, uh, indicating uh, some of their needs. Then he tells them what's wrong. He tells them what's good about them. And then eventually he gives them some sending off admonition. So Jesus' posture here is Jesus approaches the church of Sardis with the Holy Spirit. It says in 3 verse 1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And from previous studies, you know the seven stars are talking about the angelos, 
the pastors of the churches. But what is the seven spirits of God? The Spirit of God is obviously the Holy Spirit. But why here does it refer to him as the seven spirits of God? Are there seven different Holy Spirits? No, there's a singular Holy Spirit. But sometimes the Bible pictures him and his work in seven different ways. Many theologians believe this is referring to the Holy Spirit, myself included. Uh, Zechariah presents the, the work of the Holy Spirit and he himself in the temple with this seven-stick uh, seven menorah in the temple, this candlestick. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, talks about the sevenfold work and personage of the Holy Spirit. It refers to him as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear. And so... Jesus is coming with the Holy Spirit, reminding this church of something that they are missing. Whatever is present in the church, the Holy Spirit is not terribly active there. And when we say the Holy Spirit, friends, we're not talking about improvisation. You know, a, a preparation or a lack of preparation doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is more active in a church. We're also not talking just about excitement. Okay, uh, that, you know, sometimes we'll have a rousing worship service and people say, wow, the Holy Spirit sure was here and at work today. And maybe he was, but can you ever have excitement without the Holy Spirit? Of course you can. You've been to a concert. See, a lot of people very excited. Very little of the Holy Spirit is taking place there. Uh, you can also have something that is relatively quiet, and yet the Spirit is completely full within that person. Uh, maybe they're hurting. They've been injured by someone, but they still go to them in love to reconcile with them. There's not a lot of excitement there, but the Holy Spirit is extremely present in that individual. We're also not, when we say Holy Spirit in a church, we're not talking about ostentatious, loud, uh, extra-biblical activities of the Holy Spirit, things that the Bible never mentions, like we're not talking about being slain in the Spirit. That's not in the Bible. We're not talking about people who are rolling in the Spirit, barking in the Spirit, vomiting in the Spirit. And sadly, you have to say this because those things exist in some churches. This is not, these, these wild, out-of-control displays do not mean the Holy Spirit has taken over. Quite often, it means the flesh has taken over, and I'm drawing attention to myself. So we need to be careful that what we blame on the Holy Spirit comes and originates from God's Word, because what the Holy Spirit does will always complement the Word of God. So Jesus' prognosis here, he sees through, there's a spiritual facade here. He sees that they're dead. They're lacking the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of people in the church who have walked an aisle, but they're not saved. There's a lot of people who are saved, but they're infantile. They're not being filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit just isn't present here. Sardis, he says in verse 1, he's going to tell this church that they are dead. He says, I know your works. No matter what we do in a church, Jesus sees. And he says, you have a reputation of being alive, but what are they actually? They're dead. They have a reputation. When he talks about reputation, he means that people talk about the church at Sardis. It means that once upon a time, Sardis was a live, lively, vibrant church. They're, they're focused on Jesus. They're taking Jesus to the world. They're evangelizing the, the world with the gospel. People are being added to the church. There's, there's passionate singing, not just... Uh, here we go with another chorus, another song I don't know. And, you know they're, they're, they're passionate in their singing. Their giving is willing and cheerful and voluntary and sacrificial. That's how this church was. And can I tell you, having been part of many church plants, uh, some in the States, some in China, some in Malaysia, all church plants tend to, uh, tend to start this way. They start with, with a focus on Jesus and getting him out to a lost world. 
and then they, the, 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 the preaching is fiery. It's from the word of God. It's, they're just, they want you to know what the word of God says. And the, the people, they come together and there's a sense of unity and joy and peace and love. It's a place that you long to go. It's, a, it's the kind of church that you want to invest as much money as we can into simply because we believe in the, with the message that we're taking out to this lost world. This is how church plants start. They're consumed with the function of a church. Are we doing what Jesus wants a church to do? They're not too concerned about the form of a church. Have you noticed, if you've ever been a part of a church plant, they're not too concerned about the form. Uh, our first church, it started in our home with one other person, and we just prayed in our living room. Nobody really dressed up. We just, we just prayed. We moved to a park. We were on park benches, and we were, eventually we ended up in a gymnasium and things like that. So Church plants, we're just concerned with, are we doing what Jesus wants us to do? Do I have chairs or pews? Doesn't matter. Do we have a church building of our own? It doesn't matter. We're accomplishing the function Jesus gave. And that's how churches begin. And they have this reputation for being, Jesus calls this, being alive. That the Holy Spirit is moving through us and causing us to go out in the world. And it's an exciting, fun place to be because we're meant to be paddling in the white waters, if you will, not dabbling on the shore. He wants us to be in the white water of where the Holy Spirit and Jesus is active in our life. And that's where Sardis once was. He says you have a reputation. People knew you to be this way. But what usually happens when a church gets successful, eventually we get complacent. And we have so much momentum driving us forward that we just kind of shift into neutral and we sit back and we listen to the radio as the car moves, but it just slows down over time. And eventually it stops. We're relying on past momentum. We don't keep that energy going. Well, this was Sardis. They had a reputation for their past church. They keep pointing back to what God used to do. They point back to an old form of church, and they were still existing as church. They had all the external trappings of church. They had the form. They had the church building, if you will. They had the church people. They did what church people do, but there was no life. The Holy Spirit just wasn't active in their hearts. It wasn't present within them, and Jesus called that church dead. The church had become, if you will, a museum. It's a place where we remember what God did, but we don't celebrate what God does. Is that what God wants a church to be as a museum? Where we, where we look to the past and just, just celebrate what God, we no longer do what God wants us to do as a church? Now friends, I want you to hear me. We remember the past. We celebrate the past. We, we give thanks to God for the mighty men and women of God that God has used in our churches in the past, both here and churches around the world. We even celebrate what God used to do through Sardis. But friends, we don't live in the past. We don't talk about the past. We don't glorify the past. We live in the present. Remember when David was gathered to his fathers, the Bible says that David had accomplished the purpose of God in his own generation. That there's certain things that God wants us to do here and circumstances change. The gospel doesn't change. The word doesn't change. The function of the church never changes. Can the form ever change? I'll tell you right now, the form, the form has changed. You guys aren't wearing robes. Why haven't you brought your robes to church today? Who here brought their scroll to church this morning? Nobody rolling out those scrolls? Well, which scroll do we bring to church this week, honey? You know, you got your little vellum scroll. You're not wearing robes. You're, in fact, if we want to return to old church forms, you wouldn't be sitting down right now. 
old church form was the congregation stood up and I get to sit down. I like that one. And we preach for about four hours. Anybody? You want to recover that form? You guys want to be here until like three in the afternoon? Anybody? And so we want to make sure we're not just preserving the form of a church. We want to preserve the function, what we do. We want there to be life. But a church like Sardis that ceases to evangelize, they're not consumed with the functions of a church. Evangelism, giving, love, discipleship, and being creative. Friends, that's, those, are, you know, those are symptoms of an alive church. When we're no longer creative in thinking of new ways to love our Lord, we kind of become dead. It's sort of like an, a, a dead marriage. Alive marriages, we're always thinking of new and creative ways to love our mate. We continue to think of new places to take them on dates. We find new ways to please them. Okay? When we stop doing that, we just become a butler and a maid sharing a mailbox and drinking out of the same milk carton, but we're not moving forward in our relationship. We've stagnated. Sometimes can churches, as the bride of Christ, can they stagnate in their marriage to Jesus? We sure can. And we stop being creative. We just start going through the motions. Act, there's activity, there's form, but there's no real function taking place. We're kind of like the carpenter ant of Brazil. I got a picture here for you. I hope it disturbs you like it does me. That is indeed an ant, uh, and I'm glad to tell you it's in Brazil because I don't want this guy in my backyard uh, when I'm mowing. But there's a carpenter ant in Brazil, and there's a certain fungus that sometimes infects the carpenter ant. And I'm going to read this one. It's called the Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Layman's terms, it's called the zombie ant fungus. You see, when the, when the fungus gets into an ant, uh, it, starts to t- it starts to grow inside the individual ant, and it starts to feed off the nutrients of the ant on the inside. Eventually, it affects the ant's brain. Now, how do you know which ants have been infected by this fungus? They stop doing the work that an ant was supposed to do. An ant is supposed to listen to the commands of the queen and of the colony. The ant no longer listens to its head its head is being hijacked by itself. And you can tell which one of those ants have been hijacked because they'll do something really odd. They'll find the nearest branch or stem or leaf and they'll climb exactly 25 centimeters off the ground and they'll take their mandibles and they'll latch onto something and they'll never let go. And they'll hold onto a leaf or a branch or something and then they just sit there and they hold tightly to it until they still look like an ant, but they no longer act like an ant. They've lost its function. And this ant, the the, the fungus just takes over this whole ant, and eventually this gross thing grows out of its head. uh, And it starts dropping spores onto other ants, and it starts to infect the people around them. Can that ever happen in a church? Where there's a fungus that grows within us, where we just, we, we lose connection to our head. We stop concerning ourselves with what Jesus wants, the head of the church. And we just start thinking, what do I feel like I want the church to be? That's a symptom of a zombie church fungus. And it can eat us alive. And we become more concerned about what we individually want the church to be rather than connecting ourselves to the head. What are some symptoms of the zombie church? We focus on the form of the church and not the function. That's the the chief symptom of of a church that's being zombified is we just worry about the form, the external, the trappings of the church. We start focusing and canonizing how we do ministry and not the ministry itself. That can happen. Uh, Things like pews versus chairs. Does it matter? Is it in the Bible? I mean, where in the book of Hezekiah, does it say that? There's no book of Hezekiah, by the way. Got a guy over here, he's thumbing through his Bible. I have not seen that book. 
But we quote it all the time because, you know, churches argue over pews and chairs. Does it matter? No, we could sit on the floor. Church plants in China, they sit on foam mats. Anybody want to go to that? We just all sit communally, cross-legged on foam mats on the floor. That's a form. It's not a function. The function is we attend together faithfully the church of God, and we make it a priority, and we don't miss. We, we, we cancel other things to be here. That means it's a, it's a priority. We want to be here. That's the function. What I sit on, that's the form. What about the order of service? Is that in the Bible? What if I preach first and we sing later? Is that okay? Is that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible how we do it. That's a form. Uh, what about pews, or what about hymnals versus projectors? They didn't have either of those in the Old Testament. So now what? It's a form. The key, what's the function? That we sing and offer up our worship to God. What about what we wear to church? Coats, ties, you know, women, can they wear pants? You know, by the way, we're not engaging in that argument here. I'm just saying, what is it? What we wear to church, what's appropriate? It's a form. It's not a function. What time the service starts? Is that, a, is that a, in, in, just engraved in stone? Thou shalt start thy church at, you know, 930 and not an hour sooner? Is that in the Bible? What about how long a church service is or how late it goes? Is that in the Bible? Sometimes we focus on the form, not the function. And I could go on and on and on with these different things, but friends, sometimes we try to preserve the form of the church, what we're familiar with, rather than stopping to examine, are we accomplishing what our head wants us to do? And we get disconnected. And when we ask, why do we do it this way? What's always the answer? Because we've always done it this way, right, friends? Friends, I want you to hear me say this with all the love in my heart, because you know I love you, and if you don't, give me some time. We're always the last person to leave the building. If you want to talk to us, stick around. You might wait a while, but we'll get to you. We care about you, but here, friends, because I care about you, we're going we're gonna to talk about difficult things sometimes. Friends, the phrase, the reason we do it, because we've always done it that way, is the rallying cry of the dying church. Because we've always done it that way, friends, is the rallying cry of the dying church. What's it communicating? We don't care what the head wants. We're looking back at the past. We're focusing on the form. We're not so much concerned with what Jesus wants to do in our present culture. We're not concerned about being creative and reaching our world where they're at now. We just want things to look like what's familiar to me. It's comfortable to me. It's not a good reason to do it. Now, it's also not a good reason to throw it away. There's some old things that we do that need to be held on to, okay? But we have to make sure that it's accomplishing the function that it was created to do because that's what we're here to do. Not look like a church. We're here to be church. Jesus' prescription for the dead church is this. He's got a word for Sardis. He tells them in verse two, he says, wake up. We all love those words, don't we? Teenagers, you love that? Mom, dad, come in your room. Wake up! Dad comes in with a cup of cold water. I don't know what he does, but when he wakes you up, he's trying to introduce truth into your life. You are sleeping. You should be awake. You're snoozing. You're smacking that alarm clock over and over again. You should be up and getting ready for school. Uh, same thing for us. You should be up. There's work to be done. That's what wake up means. We allow truth to stir us to action. He said, and waking up also indicates something about our condition. He means we're sleeping. We're not aware of what's going on around us. We're not sure of what our problem is. We're asleep. We're ignorant of what's, of what's going on. Asleep means that it's daytime and there's work to be done. 
that we need to be about. Jesus said in John 9, we must work the works of him. We, who's that? That's Jesus and that's, that's you and me. We must work the works of him who sent me. Who's that? That's God. That's the purpose of your life, by the way. The purpose of your life is not a nine to five, a giant 401k and going to Disney for you know, several vacations and maybe even a cruise. Okay, that's, that's not the purpose of our life. The purpose of our life is to work the works of him who sent me. And then he says, while it is day. Biblically speaking, what is daytime? It's while you're still alive. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, Jesus says, I'm going to be the light of the world. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to be doing what live people do, and that is to bring glory to God. That's going to be the light of the world, to let my light shine before men that they may see my good works and glorify my Father who's in heaven. While it is day, as long as it's daytime, as long as you're alive, we have work to do. Are you alive today? Do we have any dead people? Would you raise your hand if you're, just, if you're dead this morning? Not too many, okay? So it's, it's fair to say that everybody gathered here today, it's still daytime. And there's still work to be done. You say, well, I'm older, I'm retired. There's no expectations of me. Is that what, is that what Jesus said? No, it's not. Now, friends, I do want to be fair and kind. When you get older, we, we serve in a more diminished capacity. We don't have the energy and the strength we had as young people. No one's asking you to go up here. Okay, if you're, if you're 95 years old, we're not asking Miss Libby here, okay, to go up here and to uh, put up the Christmas tree and heft these big pieces over her, over her head. Can you imagine? Now, she probably could do it. Those of you who know her, she could probably do it. But we're not asking people to do that. We're just simply saying, as much as ability as God has given you, continue to use it and serve the Lord with whatever you have till the day you die. Because while you're still alive, you're daytime. And friends, can I say this especially to our, those who are older, the mature, the retired in our, in our church? Friends, we need you desperately. We need your wisdom. We need your maturity. We need you discipling people. We need to hear your voice. We want to hear your voice. We want to serve side by side with you. We desperately need you. While it is day, I will work the works of him. While I'm in the world, I will be the light of the world. But Sardis is not being the light of the world. Sardis is, they're sleeping. They're like Dorothy and her friends on the road to Oz. You remember that movie, right? Terrified you as a child because of the winged monkeys. And you got Dorothy, and she's just kind of, it's almost a picture of the Christian life. She's just dropped this bizarre universe she has, knows nothing about. But then this oracle, this voice from beyond comes and visits her, Glenda, you know, and she's, she's telling her what her purpose in life is. You need to go off to this. You need to be working your way to the Emerald City. And so she gathers herself into, if you will, a small group, a church of like-minded individuals. We're going to gather together. We're going to accomplish this great task together. And they're, they're overcoming obstacles together, and there's unity, and there's joy, and they're singing, locking arms, right? That's, that's the church. And they, they're moving along the path, but there's also an enemy, isn't there? The wicked witch of the east. And the wicked, wist, wicked, wicked witch of the east doesn't, wants to oppose what Dorothy and her friends are doing, so what does she send them? Not just the winged monkeys. Let's go to the happier part. She sends them poppies. You guys remember that, right? You know, poppies. Attractive to the eye and soothing to the smell. For whatever reason, the Wicked Witch of the East sounds like William Shatner in my head. 
She says, poppies. Uh, she, their, their gaze drifts from the eternal city to just temporary earthly things that, tant t that tantalize our eyes, that titillate our, our sense of smell. We're just enjoying the life that we have, and we become, they became complacent, and eventually Dorothy and Toto, they fall asleep on the ground, and the tin man weeps. They lost sight of where they're supposed to be going because of, what's, because of what was there on earth. Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, you need to wake up. You don't even know the danger you're in. You're dying, and, you're, and those of you who are still alive, you're sleeping. He says, strengthen what remains. This just means that the church is not going to be moving forward by placating the desires of the zombie ants. Those who have just latched on to something because it's what we do and there's a form, but there's no function. He says, rather, strengthen what remains. He says specifically, what is alive and remains in the church. So you, uh, you battle deadness in the church by, by going to the faithful, those who want to grow, those who want to serve, those who want to know Jesus and grow. And you disciple them, you strengthen, you edify, you build up. And friends, we're going to do that as a church. It's Ephesians 4.12 says, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Friends, who does ministry? Is that pastor? Yes. Who else is it? Anybody else who's alive. Ministry is the privilege of every believer that your life has more significance and meaning than just working a dead-end job and, and trying to get some fishing in on the weekend. Nothing wrong with fishing. Sorry, Kevin. I'm not, I'm not disrespecting fishing here. But that's not the purpose of my life, that you, you can live a life of eternal significance and meaning by entering into, remember what we talked about, being baptized into the purpose of Jesus. And so that's part of all of us. Uh, Colossians 1.28 really is the purpose of our church. What are we here to do? We're here to make disciples. We'll talk a little bit more about that this evening. Him, Jesus, him we proclaim. We, we proclaim Jesus, and a live church proclaims Jesus. And then it says, warning everyone. Now, that sometimes means saying things that are difficult. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. It means we teach the entirety, the whole counsel of God, not just the things that are palatable. And here's our purpose, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Who needs to be mature in Christ this morning? Everybody. Does that mean you? Everybody needs to be mature in Christ. We don't just come to church to get out of hell. We come to church to be strengthened, to be made like Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. And so we need to have systems in the church, friends, that make it possible that every individual is able to be made like Christ and growing. So I'm going to share you just a little vision of some of the future of this church here. Okay? Got a picture here for you. Got a little funnel Okay, everybody that comes into the church, we're enjoying big church right now. That's what, that's what that big part of the funnel is. We come to church, we sit down, we sing, we fellowship, we give, uh, we listen to the word of God, we unite together as one body. And this is important. We will never abandon this. This is important. Uh, we're commanded to do this and be faithful to it. But what if we just stop there? We don't have those intimate relationships. We don't have discipleship going on. By sitting up here, I have no idea how Jamie's doing. You know, I have no idea how the brother's living or how he's, how he's feeling or if he's hurting. I have no idea over here with how Brad's doing because it's too big of a, a group. I can't get to everybody. So what do we have? We have smaller groups. We have Sunday school in this church. You may have Sunday schools, uh, home groups, life groups. We call them all kinds of different names. Friends, that's just the form. We're talking about the function of getting into smaller groups. 
The purpose of the Sunday school isn't just to repeat what we do here, where you just sit and you listen to one dude talk as he, you know, and you just kind of snooze and tune out, almost ready for church. The purpose of small groups is to get into these smaller groups where you can get to know each other more intimately, go deep into those relationships, where you can not just have the proclamation of the word, but the discussion of the word, teaching, okay? Not just kerygma, the Greek word for proclamation and preaching, but didache from the, uh, comes from the, the root word is a discourse, a conversation where we discover truth together. That's what we do in smaller groups, and there we get to know each other better. But we can't even just stop there, and here's why. The Bible also has commands where we need to have more intimate, closer, one-on-one type relationships. The Bible even says in James 5, we need to confess our sins one to another. When's the last time you did that in Sunday school? promise you, you're going you're gonna to struggle to build a Sunday school if you demand that your people sit there and, and uh, talk about their sin struggles in front of 15 other people. So how do we get to that place? We get down into D groups. We get to one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-three. We don't want to get too big, otherwise you're just another Sunday school. But D groups, friends, is going to be the tip of the spear of what we're doing at the church. This is where we want to funnel people to at some point in time. It's going to be a very significant and prominent place of what we do. Why? Because that is where discipleship is going to happen. Discipleship is not just adding knowledge to our heads, is it? Because you can have very smart people who are wicked. James 2.19 says Satan has belief in God. He has certain understandings of God. We don't just want to get you active, coming to church and giving and doing things, because then you could still have a Pharisee. Know a lot of Bible, very active in religious work. You still aren't like Jesus. We want to get to the place where it affects our heart. We're loving and joyful and kind people, friends. And that's what we're going to be drilling toward in D groups. If you're not a part of D groups, friend, please seek one. I know, granted, this is a great time to promote it. They're coming to a close for this season. Um, But I say that to say this. We're going to be introducing some new modular content to D groups, providing some targeted focus. It's going to be almost like the first few modules are going to be like boot camp. Those of you who have been in the military, No matter what job you do in the military, everybody needs to know how to make their bed, stand, come to attention, recognize and salute, and you you need to know how to fire a gun. I don't care if you're a medic or a flight mechanic. There's certain skills everybody needs, and there's certain skills every Christian needs. We're going to be teaching those skills in D groups. Friends, you're going to want to be a part of that. And if you want to be one of the facilitators, we're not asking you to teach. We're asking you just simply to facilitate. There's going to be scriptures and there's going to be prepared questions guiding our conversations toward growth. If you want to be a part of that, call the office staff and let them add you to the list. This next quarter, if you will, sometime January, February, we're going to be doing facilitator training. And you can get into the white water of D groups. So we want to make sure that we have a church that is growing and strengthening what remains. Verse 2, Jesus says, Wake up, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. They stopped doing the work that they were supposed to do. Jesus says it should continue. Then in verse 3, he says, Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If we're not doing what Jesus wants us to do as a church, what do we do? We change. We don't find another church. We don't find another pastor. We don't find a different Bible. We change our lives to be in conformity with what the head wants. We don't let the fungus grow up and take over our heads. It means we used to think church had to look this way, the form. We're just preserving the form of church. Now we realize the important thing about a church is the function. 
honoring Jesus, getting the gospel into the world, discipling people, giving, growing, loving. That's what a church is supposed to do. The form of it changes from culture and throughout time. Jesus promised to this church is verse three, if you will not wake up, if you will not change, you will not repent. I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Coming like a thief means that you're asleep, you're not aware of the danger that you're in. Jesus says he'll come like a thief. You say, pastor, is this a reference to the rapture, like a thief in the night? No, friends, it is not. In the rapture, Jesus is coming for you. What's he doing here like a thief? He's coming against you. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know what that means, but I know what it meant to other churches. It means he says he's going to come and remove your lampstand. He's going to shut your church down. He's going to let it die. If we don't repent and change to what Jesus wants, he's going to let our church die because Jesus is more important than the church. It's what we're about. And then he has a promise to the faithful. He says, you know, because even in a dead church, there's always going to be people who are alive who want to see Jesus active. They want to be about what he wants. They want a church that does what Jesus wants so that Jesus can bless that church. They're truly born again. They're being controlled by the Spirit of God. He says in verse 4, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They're approved by Jesus. I want to live with the approval of Jesus. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy Lord. Isn't that what you want to hear? The way we hear that is by going back to the word, repenting of what doesn't look like that and changing what we do so that Jesus is glorified in what we do so we can hear, well done. We don't want to be that dead zombie church that just kind of has a shell, a form, an appearance, but no life. He says that we'll walk in white garments. Uh, He's talking about those who are faithful to the end, those who finish the battle. They will wear white. White is a symbol of purity. It's a symbol of holiness, that believers are said to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that uh, Jesus himself was described as wearing white robes in uh, in his glorified forms. Uh, The elders surrounding the throne, a picture of the church in Revelation, is pictured as wearing white robes. We come back with Jesus in white horses and white robes and thrones are set up and we rule with him, okay? White robes back then were something that were reserved for parties and festivals. You didn't want to work in a white robe. I mean, can you imagine digging a ditch in a white robe? You know, you didn't do that. You saved it for special occasions, weddings, feasts, holidays. It's, It's a symbol of just beauty and purity. We'll wear white robes, which means that all of eternity, friends, is a celebration of our relationship to Jesus That's what eternity is all about. And we will be with white robes with him. We'll be at the, if you will, the marriage supper of the lamb. That's his promise. And then he says, uh, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Now, friends, what's the book of life? Sometimes it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's all, it's, there's several references to it. You'll find it in Revelation 20, uh, 12 and 15, Philippians 4, 3, Revelation 13 and 20, 21. Revelation 20, 15 says, all whose names were not found in the Book of Life were cast into the lake of fire. And so the Book of Life is a record of all those who are born again. What does Jesus promise? I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Now, to blot out means to smear, to wipe away. Say, does this mean that I could have my name blotted out of the book of life? 
friends, hear this. This is a promise, not a threat. Jesus isn't saying that he will blot out names. What is he saying? He won't. He's referring to a human tradition that uh, if you had a, a contract or whatever, you did not fulfill your end of the contract, somebody could wipe out your name. You don't fulfill your end of the bargain, it's done. Also, sometimes there would be a, a ledger of city officials who would keep a record, a census of everyone in the city. If you had a bad reputation, you got on their bad side, they could wipe you clean. You no longer belong to the city. You're not a citizen. You no longer have the privileges that come with being a citizen here. What does Jesus promise? I won't be like men. When your name is placed in the book of life, it will be there forever. It's never going to be wiped out or blotted out or disappear. This isn't a threat to lose it. It's a promise to keep it. And that is a glorious promise that I will hold to. He says, furthermore, I will confess his name before my father and his angels. Jesus will confess our name. Jesus will admit to knowing us, unlike what we did to our little, little brother on the bus. You know, I'm not with this guy, you know. Uh, sometimes we'll have family. We're not too proud of, I'm not with that guy, you know. Jesus will never not associate with those who associate with him. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, what will he do? I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. What's he trying to say here? He's saying the idea is that if we truly understand what Jesus has done for us, we will confess him before men. We will re readily acknowledge him. We will joyfully be associated with him. We're not going to try to disassociate with Jesus. I'm happy to be baptized. I want people to know I'm a real genuine uh, believer walking in obedience and faith. Someone who refuses to acknowledge Jesus, the biblical idea is if you don't acknowledge Jesus, it's because you probably don't understand what he did for you. You're not a believer. He who has an ear, Jesus says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Once again, not everybody will care about this message. Some of us are more concerned whether or not I get done in just a couple of minutes, you know. Some of us may be more concerned uh, with preserving the form, and we, you might even be angry with this message. And friends, if you're angry this morning about this message, uh, please understand that we love you, and we're just trying to preach the word here. We're not trying to attack things that are good. We're trying to make sure that we simply accomplish the function of a church. But some might be angered by this message. Maybe we're, we're more concerned about what we want than Jesus wants. I, I pray that's not the case, but that could be. But some of us, we're more concerned about what Christ wants, and it fills our soul when we hear this message. The idea that this church could be filled with life and joy and vibrancy and new believers and people getting baptized and the church growing and, uh, and more importantly, the church honoring Jesus and being in a kind of church that God desires to bless. Friends, I want to be a part of that church. Do you? Let's close out this morning with just a, a brief story. It's a familiar story, but friends, it, it really hits home here. On a dangerous sea coast where ships, shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. It was just a little shack. There was only one little hut. There was a few fellas. There was only one boat. There was nothing fancy. Uh, but it was where shipwrecks often happened, and people would perish at sea. And so this group of concerned citizens gathered together 
to save lives. And so it started out small, and they would save all that they could and bring them in and, and put them in on their cots and, and, and rescue them. And eventually enough people started getting saved from the ocean that people in the community found out and wanted to be a part. People who had been rescued themselves wanted to join this life-saving station that they might save the lives of other people. And then this little life station began to grow. Well, eventually people thought, had the idea, well, why are we putting these poor, helpless people who have been shipwrecked, why are we putting them on these filthy, dirty cots? Let's put them on a fancy bed. Let's improve the furniture. Let's get a paint job out here, guys. Let's get a TV. Let's do something. And they started making it a nicer place to invite people in the church building itself. <laughs> there, the life-saving station began to grow, okay? And eventually the people in this life-saving station uh, began to view it as sort of a, a gathering place for members. We were so happy about this idea of saving lives. I just wanted to live within this culture of life-saving. And so we had symbols of life-saving all over this, uh, this particular hut. Well, as it goes, the fewer, fewer members, as they began to be just enjoying the life-saving station itself, they didn't want to go out and save lives as much anymore because that's dirty, it's dangerous, I've been doing it. And so they hired out lifeboat crews to do it for them. It so happens that a large ship, it capsized, and a lot of folks were coming in and needing saved, and those hired crews went out to save and rescue those people, and they brought them into this life-saving station. Dirty, wet, filthy, some of them were foreigners, and some of the people who had just fixed up this life-saving station got very upset. We just spent a lot of money on this, and you're making it dirty, and this is where we like to come and congregate and to hang out. And so eventually it came to a place where they, they, the property committee they decided they would rig up a shower outside of the life-saving station so that those who come in could be showered up and cleaned up before they enter into this nice facility. Well, at the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Some wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether because they felt they were unpleasant and it was a hindrance to their social life. And so a small number of the members insisted, rather, they kept pointing to the fact that we're a life-saving station. That's who we are. That's what we do. They pointed to the purpose. The primary purpose of our being here isn't our congregating, but going out and saving people. And they wanted to do that. Well, the rest of the members said, if you want to do that, you go out and start your own club. And so they did. And they started a club a little ways down the beach. Now, sadly, over a period of years, the club went through the same transition of growing getting complacent, hiring others to do their work for them, and then eventually stopping the activity of saving souls from the ocean. And if you go up and down that, that uh, particular path of highway along the, along the ocean, you'll see a number of elite clubs that still bear the motif of life-saving. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the passengers drown. Friends, I don't think I need to tell you where the illustration is in that. A church always and needfully must so ask themselves who they are. What are we? We're a church. We're called out ones. We're given a great commission to go, not just to congregate here, but to go out into the world. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? And that our, our purpose, Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses. That's what we're about. What do we do? We're here to glorify Jesus by reaching others and discipling them and strengthening them, and every church has a choice to make. Either we're going to focus on the form of the church, what ultimately is comfortable and desirable for me, or we're going to call ourselves 
to the purpose and the function of a church. Friends, I pray that you want to be a part of the kind of church that Jesus desires, that we're doing the functions Jesus created us to do. Let's close this morning in prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us your word, that you did not just save us, God, and and leave us to try to figure out on our own what a church is supposed to be, that you have given us a very clear message all throughout Scripture, what a disciple is, what the gospel is, what... uh, what a church is supposed to do and to be. And God, I I pray today, we're, we're not trying to villainize any forms of church. We're trying to make sure that the forms we have match their function and that the form never gets in place of the function or interferes with the function. God, help us to be those who get our signal from the head, who receive it joyfully and gladly, God, that that we would take that message to heart, that we would go out into a lost world and to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask this, God, that we might be a people who hold forth your name, who glorify your name, who are filled with your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that this has been an encouragement to you. If you're interested in our gathering times or just want more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Join us next week as we open God's Word together.